Hello, Hello and welcome and to Afternoonified, the podcast where everything needs to be a goddamn competition and no one can just go for a nice leisurely stroll in Antarctica anymore. I'm in Antarctica anymore. I'm Sarah. Look, I think we can all agree that the most important thing is that I got there first. all where i'm not doing it again the worst cold open i've ever written uh, may i remind you of what episode three when it was literally just <laughs> <laughs> now it's the worst opening i did my best to farts are be the funny. funniest bodily function i think is this just a thought that's occurring to you now oh i was just thinking about how i'm gonna do a mini about farts at some point you already did did I? Yes. I know because I had to put it into the notion we started. <laughs> I did an episode about farts? You did a whole mini about farts. No, I did a mini called- about people who farted professionally, Sarah. That's different. I'm talking about the science of farts. I'm pretty sure you covered both. We'll review the tapes later. What are we talking about today? Very cold boys. Oh, are we going to be talking about the new season of True Detective? Yes. <laughs> Actually, no, because I'm two episodes behind. Sarah. No spoilers. I know. So we're talking about very cold boys. Very cold boys. Specifically, cold cold men racing to get to the South Pole before any of the other cold men um, in the old-timey days. <laughs> so How old We were talking uh, 1911. Ooh, we should not be having boys out in the South Pole. We did not have the... You couldn't get a North Face jacket for shit back then. No, and that's kind of the appeal of it. We'll get into it. Um, Quickly, (laughs) my sources. uh, Wikipedia, thank you. uh, The Antarctic Heritage Trust, great source. And the American Museum of Natural History, actually, huge shout out to them because they had the most, like, comprehensive narrative of, like, both of the expeditions and, like, what was actually happening. And it was written in, like, a very clear and concise way, whereas, like, the Wikipedia was very hung up on, like, how many metric tons of beef there were. See, I like stuff like that, but I can see where it would get in the way of the narrative. It, yeah, it, it doesn't, like, it's really informative, but it doesn't make for writing a good podcast episode. <laughs> so. You don't just want to give us, like, their uh, manifest? Yeah, pretty much. I am speaking today specifically of the Race to the South Pole, um, between Robert Falcon Scott's expedition, the British Arctic Antarctic expedition, and the expedition of Roald Amundsen, who was a Norwegian explorer. I'm sorry, so, did you say his mid- what was that first guy's middle name? Roald Amundsen. No, the, the Amundsen one before that. being his uh, Robert Falcon Scott. Falcon. Okay, just checking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, an American, bird. British. Uh, if he was American, his middle name would be Eagle. That's right. Okay, keep going. Uh, these two expeditions are traditionally what is called um, the the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. God, men will is, do anything to make their dumb fucking ideas sound better. Which is essentially the time from the end of the 19th century to the close of the First World War, where everyone was really obsessed with exploring Antarctica. Um, but before we, you know, actually developed the technology... Um, to do it in a way that, you know, didn't involve like an 80% chance of freezing to death. Jesus Christ. Now, I'm exaggerating that statistic. Um, actually, <laughs> a surprising number of people make it out of this episode alive. Any children that we should be aware of? No dead children. 
Oh, right. I forgot about that thing. <sighs> Fine. Keep going. Uh, so hence the heroic label, like, uh-huh. you know, it's people exploring when there was a lot of endurance and a lot of achievement involved in doing these things. So during this age, there were 17 major Antarctic expeditions launched from 10 different countries. And altogether, there were 19 expedition members that would never make it back alive. So, so I mean, this is like the, the moon race before we thought about going to the moon. Yeah, every like decade's got to have its thing, and this one was like polar exploration. I don't even want to know what it is right now. I think it's still space. No, they probably it's probably some AI bullshit. They've probably gone too conceptual with it. Men don't do anything these days. <laughs> I saw a TikTok that was just like a woman in this beautiful cathedral, and just like you know, like a big European, like just beautiful medieval cathedral. And the text on it was just like, "Men used to build things like this, and now they just cry about Taylor Swift being on their football game." <laughs> it's like I've never identified with something harder in my entire life. Yeah, men also were crying about women being in their space back when the cathedrals were being built. We just want learn to recognize the cathedrals more. Yeah, it's like men were still shitty back when they were building cathedrals, but they were at least they were also building cathedrals. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> now they yeah, they weren't just, just like shit. eating hot wings and crying on the internet because a hot lady was on the screen during their men in tight pants match. Oh boy. <laughs> I haven't eaten it edible. This is just me. <laughs> me and the like half of a hard seltzer. I'm just laughing at how like how many of our episodes just eventually devolve into like just Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, but just feminist rants at this point. <laughs> well, maybe if certain classes uh, genders of people stopped being terrible, we'd have to do it less. Uh we're going to give we're, we're going to give the men some credit. There were some real achievements made during this time. Uh there were expeditions that reached both the geographic and magnetic south poles, uh which was kind of the one big goal everyone actually cared about and um of course the subject of today's episode. Um these expeditions also mapped much of the continent's coastline, explored significant portions of its interior, and they also gathered large, large quantities of scientific data across a wide variety of disciplines which would be studied by the world scientists for decades. So not only were they doing their, you know, their big boy race, but they also like did something useful while they were at it. Yeah. I mean, I will say for as much as I'm going to make fun of them for like taking their dicks out and measuring them. Um, <laughs> it, it is very impressive that, I mean, someone had to do it first. Yes. Um, so with that, we're going to meet the first of our very cold boys, <laughs> Robert Falcon Scott, um, which let's be clear, amazing name for a turn-of-the-century Antarctic explorer. He sounds like he's the head of, like, a a butt rock band. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Falcon Uh, Scott. Scott was a British Navy captain uh, and already a famous explorer when he embarked on his second Antarctic expedition in 1910. He was born on June 6th, 1868, and he was the third of six children and the eldest son of John and Hannah Scott. Uh, John owned a small brewery in Plymouth, England, uh, but the extended family had a long tradition of naval and military service, with Scott's grandfather and four of his uncles having all served in either the British military or the British Navy. So so he had some like high expectations on him as like all of that family history to also being the oldest son, but after like two girls. Like, yes, correct. So much shit probably heaped on him in terms of like expectations. Yes, I expect he was highly anticipated. <laughs> so he began his naval career uh, in 1881 at the age of 13. <laughs> what? 
which is a perfectly normal age to join the Navy. I'm just imagining, like, <laughs> in an admiral's costume with, like, the big hat, but, like, the jacket's so big that, like, it goes over his hands and it's just, like, the hat covers most of his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he gradually rose through the ranks. Uh, in 1897, after the death of his father, Scott, the Scott family faced a crisis. So John Scott, having sold off his brewery years before, uh, had invested his money poorly. So he had left the family bankrupt. Uh, and then the whole situation got worse when Scott's younger brother, Archie, died of typhoid in 1898. So essentially leaving Scott as the sole provider for his family. Like he, I think his mother was still alive and he had two unmarried sisters. So oh, well, they were useless. depending on him. Yes. Cause they're not allowed to go out and have jobs. They're women. Didn't we also talk about this during the brothers Grimm episode where like their dad died and all of a sudden was like, you're nine, but you're the only man. So work harder. Your family's yeah. going to die. Pretty much. Um, thankfully, like Scott was like a full grown adult, but at this point he was no longer 13. He had grown. Uh, Very good. It's just like, <laughs> no pressure, Scott. Um, I mentioned all of this because this means like Scott, his primary concern was like, oh, shit, I need to like, I need to get a promotion. I need to like actually <laughs> start making some money because uh, I got a lot of people depending on me. Was the Navy uh, so, not paying? <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine in 19, 1898. No, <laughs> probably not at his level. Uh, so, um, looking for an opportunity to distinguish himself, Scott volunteered to lead the major British National Art- Antarctic Expedition, which departed in 1901. Wait, so just, how old like, would he have been? 1901, born in 1868, he would have been like 43, 33. Oh, okay. Okay. Because, like, he was 13 when he joined the Navy. I'm like, hmm, Navy middle school. And then, like, my brain just went on a whole sweet life of Zach and Cody, like, at sea <laughs> thing. Uh, he will be being played by one of the Sprouse twins in this movie I'm creating in my head. I don't care if he's 40. Yeah, now that he, he, I mean, I'll post a picture on um, the slideshow. He definitely has a receding hairline, but he does have a baby face. So it's not bad casting. Well, now I'm picturing that guy from Succession, the one that's always sad, Kendall. Um, Yes, our dear Kendall. All right, recasting, continue. Actually, that's really good casting. You are welcome. <laughs> uh, so during the expedition, Scott and his team members reached a record 82, 82 degrees, 11 feet south. Um, and Scott made a great many scientific and geographical discoveries. They returned as heroes in 1904, and Scott wrote a book of his account, The Voyage of the Discovery, for returning again to his career in the British Navy. So in the in-between years, in 1908, he married his wife, Kathleen Bruce, and topped off what was probably a pretty good year with a promotion to captain. So he was actually going to start making said money. Congrats, man. Um, Also, I just Googled him and my casting was spot on. Yes, correct. This has nothing to do with anything, but I had to mention that he at some point served as naval assistant to the second sea lord. What is that? Which I don't know. I didn't look it up because I didn't want to know. I don't want to ruin it for myself because like, as I picture it now, he's like Poseidon's secretary. Yeah, it sounds like a position from One Piece. (laughs) Anyway, that's exactly what I'm picturing. Um. (laughs) But it it apparently didn't last long because he now had Antarctic fever. Uh, and he gave it all up to go focus on planning and raising money for another trip down south. You know, I hear there's a, a vaccine for that now. <laughs> In 1909, Scott got the news that Ernest Shackleton, who had accompanied him on the Discovery Expedition, just uh, narrowly failed to reach the pole on his latest attempt, turning back just 97 <laughs> miles short. 
It's like when you're almost done with a hard episode, like a hard level of like Super Mario, and you're you could see the flag, and then you die, and you're just like, well, I guess I have to do this 55 more times. I imagine that's exactly the feeling, except um, it's like negative 70 degrees, and you're on an ice shelf in Antarctica, and you've just walked 400 miles. I said a hard level of Super Mario, Sarah. <laughs> Uh, Scott really, really wanted the title of being the first to reach the South Pole. Um, and he really wasn't happy that Shackleton had almost gotten there before him. So that certainly lit a fire under his butt to get his own expedition up and going. Um, they want to make fun of him, but like, I too have also done this. <laughs> Just being in like competition with someone you've never met. For no fucking reason. You had met him. They had been on the previous expedition together. Oh, right, which right, I think right, right, right. Also, like, does make it worse because, like, they were good old buddy buddies. And then, like, this guy goes off and does his own thing and almost beats you. I, I um, get it. It's dumb, <laughs> but I get it. Uh, he was also aware of two other impending expeditions, one led by the Japanese and another by the Australians. So after years of meticulous planning, the flagship of Scott's expedition, the Terra Nova, left London on June 1st, 1910, uh, with the rest of its crew. Scott joined them in Cape Town and then left the Terra, uh, and then the Terra Nova sailed for Melbourne. Uh, Terra Nova sounds like a dope ass, like, sci-fi movie. There's some pretty good ship names in this episode. Uh, everything, it seemed, was set for a successful trip to the Pole until September 2nd when, while Scott was in Melbourne, he received an upsetting telegram for the Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen. Uh, and now we're going to do a little jump cut. Oh. Back in time. Because uh, we got to go meet Roald. Roald? Roald. Uh, probably Roald. And I'll insert some, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, like, flashback music. <laughs> so, continue. Yeah. So, we're going to uh, go back in time to meet our second very cold boy, Roald <laughs> Amundsen. Would you say one is colder than the other, ultimately? Yes. Okay. Very much so. Yes. I, I'm not going to say more than that, because it'll spoil the whole episode. But one will get considerably colder than the other. But one boy will eventually be colder than the other boy. <laughs> so Amundsen was born July 16th, 1872, to a family of Norwegian ship owners. His mother wanted him to be a doctor, but already by age 15, Amundsen knew he was going to be an explorer. Oh, God. Can you imagine <laughs> just... That's like telling your parents you want a unicycle professionally. Like... <laughs> I want to explore. Okay. Uh, so by the time he joins our story, Amundsen had already been on one previous Arctic expedition, not Antarctic, um, different different side of the world. Still very um, cold, but different challenges. Yes. Uh, he was most famous for being the first to successfully traverse Canada's Northwest Passage, which had already infamously uh, claimed the Franklin Expedition, um, which is the story of the uh, HMS Terror and um, all those other very cold boys who ate each other permanently cold boys boysicles mm -hmm. if you will boysicles yes many boysicles in the northwest passage and in this episode so <laughs> after returning to norway as a hero amundsen began to plan his next journey so his he was gonna reach the north pole that again also hadn't been reached yet uh so he spent a full two years planning an expedition uh he wanted to use the ship called the Fram. Uh, which um, belonged to a different famous Norwegian hero uh, and it had been specifically designed to navigate sea ice and freezing waters. So it was, it was a good boat, good boat for cold, cold places. You know, like in movies where you do the sequel and like, like in the Meg, it's like, all right, we did a big shark in this one. In the next one, multiple big sharks <laughs> or like yes. in alien, there's single alien. And then in aliens, it's like more aliens. So 
I thought that was just something people started doing since movies and stories existed, but it sounds like these men are doing it in real life. It's like, all right, I did this really cold thing for the sequel. I want to be colder. To a colder place. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) I'm just going to keep going to like colder and colder places until I And people will be more and more impressed because it gets colder and colder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Also, there's two sharks in this one. (laughs) In 1909, just as Amundsen was getting ready to leave, two American explorers, Robert Perry and Fred Cook, uh, on separate expeditions, both claimed that they had already reached the pole. Um, And this is just kind of like a footnote, side note to the episode. Um, It was believed for years that Perry had been the first to reach the pole, um, despite Cook claiming he had reached it a full year before him. Um, But there's actually some dispute about whether either of them actually ever reached it with no solid conclusion either way. So like... It's very hard to prove. Yeah. There's a fun mystery that we won't be talking about in this episode, um, but go read the Wikipedia on it if you're interested, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so uh, at this time, uh, at the time, this was totally enough to discourage Amundsen from his northern ambitions because he he wasn't really interested in the scientific research angle of the whole thing. Like he was just wanted to there. do it. He, yeah, he he didn't try and like pretend that he was going up there because he had science to do. He was just like, I want to go to the North Pole. See you, suckers. Um, but like northern ambitions sounds like the best Yankee candle. You're welcome. It probably candle. smells so nice. <laughs> so yeah, so he can't say he's the first anymore, so he's really not interested in the North Pole at all anymore. There's no point. Okay. So uh, I mean, sure. I I'm not gonna make fun of him. Like he just wanted to be the first at something. That's fine. So he starts thinking, you know, maybe he'll head south. South Pole's still open. There's two problems. <laughs> One, he's already got Scott to compete with. He knows Scott's on his way. Uh, two, he's got all this funding from the Norwegian government, but it's specifically to go to the North Pole. Well, and if there's anything I know about receiving grants, um, people are very, <laughs> yeah, very specific about how you spend those grants. So Amundsen, he's like, no, I, I think I've got a loophole here. So what he does, he changes his entire plan, doesn't tell the king of Norway, doesn't tell the crew um, he doesn't tell right the crew? <laughs> <laughs> not, not right away. He waits until uh, they, uh, um, they've they left. They're all the way. <laughs> so This isn't that hard to pull off. because So they're starting in Norway. They want to get up. For whatever reason, they're not going from Norway. They've got to get to like the Bering Strait, so like over by Russia. So like their plan initially anyway is to sail all the way down past the southern, southern tip of South America and then Jesus. all the way back up. So they're heading that direction anyway. Isn't Norway already pretty close to the North Pole? Yeah. See, I don't understand. I I don't know the reason why they chose this route. I did not look into it that deeply. I'm sure there was a reason why they were starting there rather than Is this man else. like a descendant of Christopher Columbus? Because that <laughs> seems to be the route that he's taking. Uh, but anyway, so like technically South America is already on the way. So he and his crew, they're already on the way to Madeira, which is like off the coast of Morocco. So he's like pretty far down. Uh, And then he then he tells his crew what's up. He's like, hey, we're going to take a detour. This is how he frames it. We're like, we we are going to get to the North Pole eventually. We will head we will head up that direction. Um, But first, we're going to take a quick stop here in Antarctica. We're just going to, you know, quick hop, skip and a jump. We're going to hit the South Pole. (laughs) We're gonna get there. It sounds like when we would drive to Southern California to go to Disneyland and then end up in fucking Bakersfield for two days because my dad wanted to see a race. Like, like we'll we'll eventually get to Disneyland, but we're gonna hang out in this fucking armpit 
for a few days <laughs> so I can watch stock cars go all like around a track. So Amundsen, he's like, we can pull this off, guys. Listen, okay. She's like, A, I've planned everything and I'm the best. B, we've got like 116 fucking sled dogs on this boat. <laughs> and the British, they don't want to use sled dogs. They don't think they don't think sled dogs can do Antarctica, but I think sled dogs are perfect for Antarctica. So we're going to have all these dogs and the dogs are going to get us to the oh, South Pole. That must have been the cutest boat. Oh yeah. This boat, chock full of dogs. <laughs> and then C, they can ski and the British fucking can't. So you know what? They've got this in the bag. I so, think the rich British guy on the other boat has probably skied before. Not like the Norwegians have. Well, no, the Norwegians fucking ski to the grocery store, but I'm just saying they probably have a little bit of experience. Uh, so with the decision made and his crew on board with the plan, Amundsen sent a telegram to Scott before he left Madeira that said, beg leave to inform you from preceding Antarctic, Amundsen. What the fuck would the crew have done if they weren't on board with the plan? They're already on the boat. <laughs> just let me off here. Just let me off here in this country where I don't speak the language and I'm too pale to survive. This little tiny island, literally like hundreds of miles from anywhere. So the race. He sounds great. It's underway. Scott's ship, the Terra Nova, set off from its final port, Littleton, New Zealand, on November 29th, 1910. So you think they did the Lord of the Rings tour before they left? I, I imagine they would have. Why would you go all that way and not? See, it's. Oh, no, I don't think. No, Lord of the Rings hadn't been written when the. Never mind. Um, so no, it is November, but you do need to remember we are in the Southern Hemisphere. So everything is topsy turvy. So winter is summer. Um, cats are dogs and the I don't think they backwards. have sled cats, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all to say they are showing up into Antarctica, which is ostensibly the nicest part of the year. Yeah, they planned this well. Yeah. On board, they have three Wolseley motor tractors, 19 ponies, uh, and oh. 33 dogs. They do have some dogs. Not as not 160. Dogs. Not 116. Um, but they do have ponies. I I'm I maybe I don't know anything. I just don't have the utmost confidence in a pony's ability to go to the South Pole. Um yeah, I horse maybe. Pony. Mm. I don't think they're like little Sebastian kind of ponies. <laughs> I think I think they're like normal size horses that are just referred to as ponies for some technical reason. This is the problem I had when I was reading The Hobbit, because they always referred to, like, and they gathered the ponies. I'm like, why didn't they just bring horses? Because <laughs> I was just picturing these, like, little fat things. I imagine they're, like, less, like, I think they're just, I think they're more workhorses than they are, like, a racing horse. If you know them, you okay. know what I mean? More of, like, a, a, a I can't think of the, a hoe puller than a yeah. sea biscuit. Something, something that would pull a plow versus something that would... Plow! That's what I was looking yes. for. You can tell which one of us grew up on a farm. <laughs> it was me. Uh, so yeah, along with um, their um, motor tractors and their dogs and their ponies, uh, they also have all the supplies, clothing, tools, and equipment they are going to need for an extended stay at the end of the earth. They are. This is a multi-year affair. This is not like a quick trip there and back. Well, and they have the added benefit of the crew knowing where they were fucking going when they started. <laughs> It does help. I I do I do need to pause here and just I know everyone is getting really excited by the sheer number of dogs in this episode. I do need to warn you that this does not end. This episode does not end well for the humans or the ponies or the dogs. So don't get attached to anybody. Uh, at least I mean the the ponies did get swept up by a really big bird. Um, yes. Spoiler. Spoiler. 
There is a race of giant birds in the South Pole. And they won't interfere in the... uh you know, battles of humans and stuff, unless they feel like they're directly threatened. So <laughs> yeah. uh, when they eventually do carry that British man to Mount Doom, uh, it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Scott's crew landed in Antarctica in January 1911 and set up a base just off the McMurdo Sound, which Scott named Cape Evans after his second in command, Lieutenant Edward Teddy Evans. How Aww. cute and gay. <laughs> Within nine days, they had constructed one of several prefabricated huts they had designed especially for this journey, uh, the largest building constructed in Antarctica during during this era. Not a uh, very high bar. (laughs) Scott wrote, the hut is becoming the most comfortable dwelling place imaginable. We have made ourselves Mm. a truly seductive home within the miles of which peace, quiet, (laughs) and comfort remain supreme. Such a noble dwelling. I don't like his choice of words. (laughs) Don't, don't, you didn't do it that much, Emily. Such a noble dwelling transcends the word hut, and we pause to give it a more fitting title only from the lack of appropriate suggestion. What shall we call it? The word hut is misleading. Our residence is really a house of considerable size, in every respect the finest that has ever been erected in the polar regions. 50 feet long by 25 wide and 9 foot to the eaves. It's a big, it's okay. a big house. Calm the fuck down, Truman Capote. I'm sure it's not that nice. <laughs> I think probably uh, for Antarctica in 1911, it was a McMansion. <laughs> it's just like, it sounds like he's trying to sell it. Like, this is the <laughs> listing on Zillow. Uh, all told, there would be 31 men wintering in Antarctica between Cape Evans and the expedition's second camp at Cape Adair, carrying out scientific research and exploring the surrounding area while they prepared for their push to the South Pole. This is really well-timed with the season of True Detective, my man. <laughs> In late January, a party of men led by former Royal Navy officer Victory, Victor Campbell boarded the, ter- the Terra Nova to carry out scientific research further east. Um, and I'm just going to break in here and say I'm not going to give like place names a lot this episode because I don't know my Antarctic geography and every place name was absolutely meaningless to me. They would be like, yes, and yeah. then they went off to, to, to explore King Edward VII land. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> We should also probably note that scientific research in 1911 uh, was like, ooh, let's collect some of these rocks. Or like, ooh, I'm going to take some notes. Like, they weren't testing shit. Yeah, it was like making observations. There was like an expedition where they went out to collect emperor penguin eggs for a reason I'm fuzzy about. <laughs> like, But they also like um, did like meteoro- meteorological research that like actually became very important later because they like documented a lot of just like meteorological data that you know. Oh, I'm sure like it was can, important like, compare against like yeah things like that. But yeah, they're it not was like still Victorian science. Yeah, it's a lot of observing and <laughs> it's documenting. It's a lot of notes yeah. and sketching. Uh, on the morning of February third, nineteen eleven, they were shocked to see another ship passing them in the Bay of Wales by some crazy coincidence or maybe not a coincidence because like they were literally the only people on the continent. Um, but they had managed to pass cross pa- cross paths with the Fram and Amundsen's entire expedition, just 400 miles from their base in the McMurdo Sound. Um, how is Bay of Wales spelled? Wales as in Wales. The Okay. Not like Diana not like, princess of, but yeah. like blow holes in Pinocchio. Okay. Yeah, like the actual whales you would expect to see, you know, hanging around. Okay. No, that, that I just didn't know if they were being very British about it. You know, I mean, they are in other, uh, other aspects in other ways, of just their not naming that conventions. One. So, <laughs> so they did know that he was on his way, but they also weren't sure like when he was going to show up or when he would land. Um, much less that they would he would show up so close to their own base. 
Um, so but the two teams got along well while they were together. Uh, they invited the other aboard their ship to share a meal um, and maybe, you know, surreptitiously size up how well the other team was prepared. Um, Amundsen was very pleased to see that the British didn't have a wireless radio because he didn't either, which meant a successful or not wireless <laughs> You've also fucked yourself. <laughs> Essentially, what that meant is like, they're not going to be, if they get to the South Pole first, they're not going to be able to wire that news back to the mainland. They're going to have to <sighs> get back on the ship and take it back to civilization. So essentially, like, whoever gets back to the civil, or whoever gets back to New Zealand first with the news is going to be the one who gets the credit. So he's, he's got that locked away in the back of his head now. Why did no one bring a wireless radio? Um, sorry, not a wireless radio, wireless telegram. I forget it's like Titanic time. So like the little Morse code machines. I'm also picturing like the two groups of um archaeologists in the mummy where they both go to the same place at the same time. One is head headed by Brendan Fraser, the other one is that little Hungarian guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but one of them has a hundred dogs. Speaking of dogs, the British were actually slightly dismayed at how many goddamn dogs. <laughs> I'm on his boat. Our ship could be so much cuter. He's got 116. They've got 33. Um, but they do they boast about, they have these motorized sledges, um, these little tractors they bought. And they're like, you know, you know, we have lost one because it fell into the sea as we were unloading oh it. Oh my God. <laughs> Don't worry about that one. You know, modern technology is always going to win the day, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just very anxious to see which group of these boys ends up coldest. Because uh, I know it's coming. They both seem overly confident. Back at Camp Evans, preparations were underway for laying depots for the next summer's journey to the pole. So this is a very critical preparation task. So essentially, like good weather into in Antarctica does not last very long. And good is a relative term <laughs> here because it's yeah, still, you're still like in fucking Antarctica. Tens of degrees below zero. Um, in the journey itself, round trip is likely to take 150 days just on its own. Um, which means they don't have time to like in one season, they won't have time to lay all the food they need along the way and then also do the journey. So they need to lay food now in preparation for next season. So next season, they are ready to just like go. Okay. So like this isn't like we're here, let's prep and then we'll head out. It's no. we're here, we're going to spend a year prepping and then we'll get around to it. Yes, like I said, multi-year expeditions. These things take a lot of time. Patience of these old-timey people. (laughs) It's insane. Scott estimated when they arrived that they had about a month that they would have, you know, good enough weather to start making these drops before, you know, they had to turn in for the winter. On January 25th, he and his team set out with a roster of ponies, dogs, and their motor sledges to drop caches of supplies along their planned route. Uh, This did not go as well as Scott had hoped. Um, These two modern motor sledges. Um, the ones that hadn't fallen into the water, um, both broke down. The ones they hadn't <laughs> fucked up. Those both broke down over the course of the journey. Um, and I'm sorry to say the ponies also didn't fare a lot better. Um, seven died or had to be killed, like, just on the journey back to Camp Evans. Who made that determination? Scott, probably. Uh, Scott had been hoping to leave his last depot, which he named One Ton, after the sheer weight of fuel and food he planned to leave there at the latitude 80 degrees south, um, but fell short about 37 miles. Put a pin in that. (laughs) Uh, He was further discouraged uh, when he learned of the Terra Nova's encounter with the Amundsen expedition and his boat full of dogs. But nothing he can do about that now. Um, The men at Camp Evans settled in for the long Antarctic winter. 
Daily activities included preparing their sledges, exercising all the dogs and the ponies, the living ones, uh, conducting scientific experiments. Uh, Scott passed most of his time preparing for the push to the pole, you know, calculating rations, things like that. Um, but it wasn't all working. Sorry, did play. you say the push to the pole? Yes. Are you proud of yourself? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but it wasn't all work and no play, Emily. <laughs> I didn't think at any point any of this was play. Uh, in the evenings, expedition members would hold evening lectures on various scientific topics, or they would play music on the gramophone that they had brought with them. So they had a fun time, too. On June 6th, to celebrate Scott's birthday, the crew made him a birthday cake, decorated with chocolate, crystallized fruit flags, and photographs of himself. What the fuck? <laughs> And honestly, I find this really charming. There was a time when men still did all this stereotypical masculine shit, but also like we're not afraid to show affection for each other and express their appreciation for each other. Oh my God, dude. I saw the cutest thing. When we were in LA, we were standing outside of the uh, restaurant and this group of like frat bros comes up to a guy that was waiting outside and one of them hands the guy that was waiting like a wrapped present and he's like i got this for you bro and like they hugged and it was just the cutest thing (laughs) i love it i felt blessed to have witnessed that i was like ah not all men i love when men act like actual human beings with feelings and inner thoughts just the i got this for you bro (laughs) Uh, but pictures of his face you say (laughs) yeah i don't know where they got any of this but they made him a real nice cake, and I think that's sweet. On October 24th, 1911, Scott and a party of 16 expedition members set out on their journey to the pole with their two remaining motor sledges, which I assume they had fixed over the winter because they're back. It would be weird if they hadn't. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Uh, the rest of their ponies and the sled dogs switching off between the three to haul their sledges across the ice. So, like, when one would get tired, you know, they'd switch to the other. They're basically just, you know, using whatever is the most fresh at the time. Uh, when all else failed, movie. yeah. When all else failed, four men together would harness themselves to the loaded sledge and pull it themselves. Which honestly, respect. respect. Yeah, that's hard work. Uh, for the next two months, they relayed supplies and continued laying depots with smaller teams breaking off to return back to camp. So essentially, they like you know they'd go a little farther, they'd lay some more, and then like part of the team would split off and go back to camp, probably picking some more with. Um, and finally, on January, if they're collecting samples and stuff, like someone's going to have to take it back so they're not just hauling around like shit. Yeah, I don't know? know if they're actually doing any scientific research as part of this specific part of the expedition. Oh. <laughs> I think most of that is happening like just kind of back at the base camp. Um, I think they're probably pretty focused on the South Pole part at this point, but it's just possible. getting there. Yeah. Um, so they keep doing this. Yeah. They're like laying supplies. You know, the team keeps getting smaller as people start heading back. And then finally, January 1912, the last support party finally turns back and they leave Scott and four teammates. Uh, so his, the final five are Scott, Edward Wilson, who is uh, the expedition's chief scientist and Scott's closest confidant. Uh, and then three men named Lawrence Oates, Edgar Evers, and Henry Bowers. I'm not going to remember those names, but they sound like nice men. No. <laughs> uh, Scott had originally planned for only four men to go to the pole, but at the last minute decided to take five. Uh, so this required doing a recalculation of kind of like weights and rations on the fly, but team pushed on regardless. On January 9th, they passed farthest south, which is the point Shackleton had reached before turning back in 1909. Uh, so Ooh. things were looking up, but then a week later, in just 15 miles from the pole... They spotted Amundsen's black flag flying on the horizon and realization set in that they had been eaten. I want to see a fucking pirate, a black flag. It's a dramatic <laughs> ass bitch. 
Norwegian. Well, I also assume that he probably made it black because it's Antarctica and there's literally nothing but ice around for hundreds I'm of miles. I'm not saying he should fly a white flag, but a black flag is just so <laughs> ominous. Like, make it pink. <laughs> just wait. Uh, so they arrived officially at the pole on January 17th, 1912 to find a small green tent uh, that Amundsen had left behind. Uh, in, inside was a letter written to King Haakon Seventh of Norway, uh, which Amundsen very politely asked Scott to deliver for him. <laughs> I would have killed him. I like, would bitch, have you're killed already him. With, you're already on your way back. Deliver it yourself. <laughs> I actually think I the real intention um, is that like he wanted to leave something behind in case he didn't like make it back. Like if he died on the guy. return journey, <laughs> he wanted to make sure that like something was left behind that like proved that he had been there and that could tell the story. <laughs> but, like, Not there the guy is like ask. an aspect of it that is so like. So passive aggressive in such a genuinely Scandinavian way that like it's <laughs> it's the old timey Scandinavian equivalent of just like shaking your butt at someone and going ha <laughs> ha. Uh, so it was stated that uh, Amundsen and his team had managed to arrive at the pole a full thirty five days earlier on December fourteenth, nineteen eleven. Also, so. have they never read Hamlet with like the Gildenstern and whatever those motherfuckers like? here's a letter like no one's gonna intercept it or change anything or like <laughs> not true rosencrantz and gildenstern those are their names yes uh the poll Scott wrote in his journal yes but under very different circumstances <laughs> from those expected great god this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to have without the reward of priority well it is something to have got there trying to make the best out of a bad situation he still so. did it that is still, it is honestly like crazy impressive. Like you literally have, you're literally hauling sleds. Uh, you're walking to the South Pole. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's not like I wasn't the first person to knit a sweater, but I still had the <laughs> sense of pride when I fucking did it. Like it's hard. So like Scott in the Terra Nova expedition, uh, the Amundsen team began to lay their depots almost as soon as they arrived in Antarctica in February 1911, laying caches at uh, the 80th, 81st, and 82nd parallels south along a line to the pole. So they actually went a little farther. It said like Scott put his last one like 37 miles short of the 80th parallel. They kept theirs. Actually, no, I think it goes back zero. So they managed to lay theirs at the 80th, which I believe is the furthest south. I might I should have maybe looked at um how latitude works before I researched this episode. I'm gonna be real with you. Even if you did understand and tried to explain it to me, still wouldn't stick. So you know how there's latitude, which is wait, no side to side. And longitude is up and down. Yes, I think you're right. Well latitude lateral is is side yeah, to side. Lateral, yes. I had to think about that. Yeah. Latitude are the ones around. Yes. So I was correct when I said latitude. I had to, I second guessed myself. I, apparently I know more than I thought. <laughs> so yeah, you have the horizontal lines going across the earth. And oh no, I was right. Okay. So you have the horizontal lines going across the earth. The equator is zero. And mm-hmm. every degree is another like line. And way, the south is like the 90th parallel. So the bigger the parallel, the closer it is to the pole. And I think each of them is, I don't know what the actual distance is between a line of latitude. But so Scott laid his just short of the 80th parallel. Amundsen kept laying his at the 81st and the 82nd. So he got much farther with his depots to the pole than mm. Scott did, if that makes sense. I, do you ever think about how fucking wild like globes and world maps <laughs> must have looked back then? I 
I don't, I can't think about that stuff too hard. Cause if I like try and think about how people figure that out, my brain just implodes on itself. Yeah. That's kind of where I am right now. <laughs> like humans are crazy. Yeah. We just figured that shit out. I can conceptualize the finished product, how you look at the world as it is and come to that conclusion boggles my mind. <laughs> I believe it. I just, I don't oh, just understand. because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's just wild that like us hairless apes manage to to figure all of the shit out and not die entirely doing it. Yeah. Entirely. You're about to tell me about some some boys dying. I, I know. Yes. <laughs> uh Amundsen had been using mostly skis and sled dogs for transport, which had been um going pretty smoothly. Uh well, so he no, had a bull someone plan. is right. Um and I'm sorry to have to break this to you all, but there is a reason why he filled every possible nook and cranny of his boat with dogs. Um, it's so kind of like back in the day, we have 15 kids because you knew that they weren't all going to make it. Yeah. See, Amundsen figures, you've got all these dogs pulling these sleds, right? They're basically uh, just like fresh food transporting itself on its own feet. No, no, Sarah, no. So those dogs were buried with dignity. You take along a lot of dogs and you butcher some along the way. And then you have fresh meat to feed yourself and also all the rest of your surviving dogs. Okay. So here's, here's where Emily is right now, knowing what you just said on this recorded podcast. This asshole turned a bunch of poor doggies into cannibals. Emily, you just said on this podcast that you're pro cannibal. I am not pro cannibal. Uh, it's only okay when humans do it. Uh, <laughs> please don't quote that. Um, I <laughs> hate this man. I don't care if he got there first. I think he needs to be thrown into the sea and then the other guy can take the credit because guess who didn't eat any fucking dogs that we know about? I, I, I Sarah, would be no. very surprised. I, I didn't like, it isn't really documented the way it is. Cause like that's, this was like, he knew not whole to strategy. talk about it. <laughs> Well, no, it's just like, this is Amundsen's whole strategy. And there's also other reasons why we get into like, why it's part of the narrative for Amundsen. But like, I'm pretty sure Scott would have eaten a dog at some point, probably ate the ponies too. Like, cause that's just the reality of polar exploration in 1911. You're going to eat some dogs. If we have to eat dogs in order to accomplish something, we probably don't need to accomplish that thing. This isn't like, oh, our plane wrecked in the Andes and all we have to eat are these huskies. <laughs> we made a choice. Uh, you warned me about that. You didn't actually. No, you warned me the dogs were going to pass away. You did not tell me what was going to happen to them. Well, probably for a reason. I am nothing if not the biggest bummer on this podcast. <laughs> I, I am more mad about this than I am about all of the kids in the last episode. <laughs> episode really not painting me as a great person. <laughs> so with their depot set and winter setting in, uh, Amundsen's team also settled into their camp, uh, which they named Framheim, which I love. Uh, they passed the time reading books, playing cars, and partaking in the and occasional eating dogs. Saturday night sauna. Oh, fuck them. They haven't, I don't think they've actually eaten any dogs yet. That comes later. Just part of the plan. Well. Uh, Amundsen was ready to make a run for the South Pole basically as soon as the sun showed up in late August 1911. Uh, he's used to the Arctic, which apparently tends to warm up quicker in the spring than the Antarctic does. So he, the spring happens, he's starting to become impatient, but the temperatures are still like negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit and not, not 
good for uh you know long walks polar bear (laughs) at any point in this story no because polar bears live in the arctic do they yeah they don't nothing lives in the antarctic penguins are no penguins do yeah and probably some other stuff seals yeah i'm realizing what i just said and i know enough about polar bears (laughs) to know that i was full of shit (laughs) i'm just kind of hoping that a certain norweed um maybe gets eaten by penguins i'll take that (laughs) they just slap them to death i was gonna stop and um just ask you you do know the south pole is the one at the bottom right yes i am aware (laughs) um i just everyone like close your eyes we're going to do something. Close your eyes and then imagine the final scene in Death Proof where Rosario Dawson and Tracy Toms and um, Zoe Bell are surrounding Kurt Russell and are just kind of <laughs> beating him to death. But I want you to imagine a Norwegian asshole <laughs> and a bunch of really big penguins. <laughs> and just sit with that for a minute and recall that later on in the story when i assume it gets worse <laughs> and there's your guided meditation for the day thank you emily i'm sure that was very helpful <laughs> for many people it helped me <laughs> so amundsen is very much aware you know scott is sitting just 100 miles away he is waiting to start his journey south as well um and it's probably with his british ex- expedition on his mind um that he decides he's going to start september 8th Remember, uh, Scott did not start until like December. So this is very Ugh. early. Um, they had a few days of steadily improving temperatures. He's like, we're out of here. Fuck it. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, so he sets off with a small group of men, a caravan of sledges and 90 dogs, uh, which turns out to be a poor decision as by like the third day out, temperatures are already dropping 70 degrees. So dogs are struggling in the weather. The weather is turning bad and the fluid in their compasses is frozen, which is a thing that can happen. Amundsen. There's fluid in compasses? Not important. Um, So Amundsen realizes he has no choice but to turn back. Um, This decision was apparently not very well received by everyone on the expedition. Um, There's a bit of like a tiff and Amundsen like essentially just ended up leaving some of his party behind (laughs) to find their way back on their own, which is kind of crazy. Everyone made it back. No one died. It really didn't do anything to improve the situation. Amundsen ended up having to essentially like, okay, the part of the team that was very mad at him. He's like, you go explore this other part of the continent. The rest of us will go to the pole <laughs> once you know we've all recovered from our frostbite. Well, Tim didn't. <laughs> Tim is missing four toes, but you know. Uh, so this final team was made up of Amundsen uh, and four men, or three men named Olaf Bjaland. Helmer Hansen, Svar Hassel, and Oscar Vistig. I got to pronounce everything like that, 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 the cadence you need to use when you're speaking Norwegian. Uh, and they <laughs> yeah, started. Yeah, sound like the wandering Oaken from Frozen, like, woohoo. So they finally started their second attempt for the poll on October 19th, heading out with four sledges and 52 dogs. Uh, so at least at the start, they paced themselves. They sledged just over like five or six hours a day. They wanted to make sure their dogs got adequate rest. They weren't like, I mean, they are going to eat these dogs, but they weren't cruel to them. Um, ah, you know what? I got to move on. We got to move on from it. I can't. Uh, they were also, bullshit, but yes. they were also much better prepared than Scott's team had been, like having managed to cash almost like 10 times the food and fuel the British had. So this meant mm. that they were in a much better position, like if they were delayed by weather or, you know, they had a mistake in navigation and somehow missed one of the depots, like they would have extra supplies. They would have a surplus. So they wouldn't be, you know, so reliant on hitting every single drop. 
Um, not that the expedition went perfectly. On at least one occasion, Hansel and Hassel fell into a crevasse because uh, they're like basically on a glacier. So it's not just like a flat like well, yeah. piece of ice. It's like there's crags and stuff. Can't be fun. And that is like the worst. I can't think of a place I would want to be less. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, they did manage to escape safely. So good for them. Uh, <laughs> when they reached the trans- Ant- Trans-Antarctic Mountains on November 17th, the team left the majority of their priv- provisions behind for a depot, only carrying enough for 60 days. So this is going to be their last push to the pole. So they're carrying just enough to get to the pole and get back to this place. Um, from there, it's a grinding climb 20 miles up a glacier onto the polar plateau <sighs> with their 42 remaining dogs who, it should be noted, did their job fabulously. These dogs are like the reason these men got to the pole because they did so well. Where's their statue? I know. We we don't talk. On, we should talk more about the dogs and less about the men, honestly. I feel like we had a pretty good run of like sled dog movies in the 90s. <sighs> yeah. So with the toughest part of the climb behind them, there was the unfortunate matter of how to proceed. Amundsen, of course, did not plan to bring all 42 dogs along to the pole with him. So he ordered that all but 18 of the dogs were to be killed for food. And like, I hate him so much. Like um, this, to be fair, like this was not a fun, cool thing for these guys to do. Like they're obviously like, they've grown attached to these dogs. And by all accounts, they did not enjoy doing this. But. Leave a guy behind to like tend to the dogs. They still have to get back. Like it's not Breath of the Wild. They can't just paraglide off of the thing they're climbing back to camp. That was a very specific reference, and I'm yes. sorry, but like they still have to get back. They still need the dogs. Yeah, but they don't need all of the dogs, and they have to feed all the dogs. Yeah, <sighs> feed them that the fucking Odmanson guy. <laughs> I don't think he'd be very much food for anybody doesn't really matter what he wants or thinks well no i'm i'm talking from a matter of usefulness like he wouldn't feed very many people yeah but the norwegians are tall there's you know there's a lot of yeah, them. but when you got 42 dogs it just, he doesn't he wouldn't go very far is what i'm saying it would be a start <laughs> uh with that unpleasant work done uh and now in an altitude of ten thousand six hundred feet which you know it is in mount everest but it's not fun it's not low. <laughs> it's onto the pole, which still at this point is 300 miles away. How do they know when they've reached it? I don't know. Measurements. It's not they like have- in the fucking Santa Claus. Like there's not. <laughs> no, there's not like a physical pole coming up. They have like instruments and stuff. <laughs> they have like science and like, I numbers, don't know. I guess. They they did like tests and things. I Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They made observations. I don't know. <laughs> so they passed farther south on December 7th, 1911. Um, Amundsen marked the occasion in his journal, say, writing, Now 88 degrees was passed. We were further south than any human being had been. No other mo- no other moment of this whole trip affected me like this. Except maybe... <laughs> I'm sorry. I made a stupid joke that I added. Except maybe all those dogs they had to <laughs> Well, I'm just kind of imagining him doing the Sam, like, one step further and I'll be the furthest from home I've ever been. And then, like, the other team just slams into him holding a bunch of carrots. (laughs) Much nicer than my joke. I mean, yours is more accurate. (laughs) The Norwegians continued on all the time on the lookout for any sign of Scott and his expedition, still nervous about the possibility that they could be bested. Um, But of course, they weren't. They reached the geographic South Pole on November 14th, 1911, and celebrated by planting a pole with the Norwegian colors. Uh, They camped there for three days, just long enough to verify their location. 
with science, presumably, uh, <laughs> to make sure it was well documented that they had been there. That's why they like left the equipment for Scott to find, as well as you know, deliver that very <laughs> passive, uh, have that very passive aggressive letter to the Norwegian king he wanted him to deliver. Did they just um, arrange all of their equipment in the shape of a big middle <laughs> finger? <laughs> they just left it in the snow to write out a big "fuck you." <laughs> With that, they set out on their return journey. Amundsen is still like very conscious of the fact that like it isn't really until um, I've let everybody know about it. So like his biggest concern is getting back to civilization so he can tell everybody before Scott does. In all fairness, getting back to civilization would be my number one concern for the entirety of the trip. (laughs) Yeah, fair. Me too. I mean, I would not go on the trip. It doesn't sound like fun. But if I was forced. Yeah. (laughs) I I like the way you said that. Just like, I don't think I'd go on an expedition to the South Pole in 1911. Not for me. No, it doesn't doesn't sound like a good time. There's no Uh, museums there. And like, the train system sucks ass. Just terrible public transportation. It's all dog based. (laughs) Actually, that would be great. I would love that. Yeah. Um, so they returned to Framheim on January 12th, 1912, or January 25th, 1912, just over a week after Scott and his expedition would find their camp at the pole. So there, these guys are miles ahead. Uh, all five men who reached the pole survived the journey, as did 11 of their dogs. So they did, they did make it. Some of them. They did take dogs back. <laughs> Not enough, but okay. <laughs> on March 7th, 1912, the Framheim, the Fram docked in Hobart, Tasmania, and Amundsen sent coded telegrams to his brother Leon, as well as King Hawken, and famous Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen, who's is his... I hope they were friends and he wasn't just rubbing it in. Uh, so that they could all inform the public of his historic achievement. So... God, I hate this guy. I hate him so much. Meanwhile, everybody is still waiting to hear back from Robert Falcon Scott and the Terra Nova. Because uh, wow. um, they haven't gone back yet. So... Unlike Amundsen, Scott left virtually no room for error when he had left his depots. Uh, the journey back from the pole to Camp Evans was more than 900 miles. And in order to get back to safety before winter set in, they had to average about like 15 miles a day. So they had to push it. Uh, they reached their first depot on January 25th, about a week after arriving at the pole. Uh, but their rations included no fresh meat, uh, as all their ponies had either died or been killed on the journey to the pole. So they well, should have packed more dogs. Should have packed more dogs. See, like, this is... No, it's not is, a rationalization, Sarah. No, I will rationalize it, because this is where I'll give Amundsen credit. Like, yeah, fucking brutal, but very practical. <sighs> uh, so with limited nutrition and exposure to an altitude of 10,000 feet, which, again, not fun for anybody, uh, the men suffered from nosebleeds, dehydration, and headaches on top of, you know, the insurmountable exhaustion of having to haul ass 15 miles across the ice every day and it was really cold yeah uh so wounds were slow to heal which became a particular concern for edgar evans who was suffering from frostbite and an accidental cut from a knife i don't know how we got that um i will tell you men just accidentally cut themselves all the time and you ask them and they're like i don't know yeah it's kinda like so. how women have bruises on their legs all the time and we don't <laughs> well, know yeah. how that that sounds about right that checks out um he fell into a crevasse twice <laughs> Jesus, Edmund. Separate occasions. Um, on the second, after the second occasion, he seemed to be suffering from a concussion. Scott observed in his journal that he was becoming, quote, dull and incapable, which is. Do you think they had to have a talk like Edmund? If you fall in one again, we're not going to get you out. <laughs> this is the last time we're helping you out, Evans. Uh, his condition continued to deteriorate. And on February 17th, with 400 miles still to go, he began to fall behind the sledge. 
Um, with Scott and the rest of the team went back for him, they found him delirious with, quote, his clothing disarranged, hands uncovered and frostbitten with a wild look in his eyes. He soon fell unconscious and died later that evening. Yeah, we learned a, a lot about frostbite and, and uh, hypothermia in the um, Donner Party episode. Yeah. I'm really hoping this doesn't go that way. Not that we know of. Okay, so are you just saying that so I don't get mad at you now? Or did no one actually eat each other? As far as I know of, no one actually ate each other. I mean, there, no one's ever okay. any evidence of that. I mean, I'm not going to, like, promise that no one ever took a nibble. <laughs> I wasn't there. I can't say for sure. I'm sorry. What did you just say? <laughs> I heard the word nibble in relation no to ever, cannibalism. No one ever took a nibble? <sighs> this, ah, this is rough. Um, so the, the, the first cold boy has, has premiered. One, we are one cold boy down. The rest of the men carried on, aiming for the 82nd degree meeting point where Scott had arranged to rendezvous with dog teams from the Terra Nova. Um, so this has been like a prior arrangement, like essentially like, hey, you know, this is about when we should be in this area. Bring the dogs. Come meet us here. Bring supplies. Because our depots don't go this far. Remember, he's at the 82nd parallel. Their depot is 37 miles past the 80th parallel. So they've got a ways to go before they even get to their next cache of food. Um, so they did arrive there on February 27th, three days ahead of schedule, uh, and waited, but no one ever showed up. So, um, the team from the Terra Nova had tried to rendezvous. Um, but there were, there were various things that went wrong with this plan. Like there were people back at camp having medical issues and like uh, just a whole bunch of shit going on. Someone tried to go out, but they were only able to get as far as that one ton depot short of the 80th parallel. Um, before he just couldn't get any farther before he had to turn back. So no rendezvous. I this think meant- the most upsetting part is that, I mean, granted, I don't know these men, but like the, the British team just seems like they're a little bit softer, a little bit more, not sentimental, but you know, friendlier. And then there's the Norwegian team that's just like, not nah, fuck you. I'm leaving without you like that kind. And they're the ones that made it. Yeah. The Norwegian team definitely strikes me as just more, I don't know, yeah, a little bit of... Ruthless. A little bit of North ruthlessness, Norse ruthlessness and ruthlessness They lack the ruths necessary for me to like them as people. <laughs> and then there's like just the kind of, you know, the usual British incompetence of... Yeah, I mean, he did all that to himself, but I just kind of <laughs> want like the soft boys to not be the cold boys. Yeah. Uh, so with no rendezvous, the only hope left was for the remaining members of the polar party to make it to this one ton depot. Um, there they'd be able to restock with supplies and fuel. They'd be able to get that 150 miles back to Camp Evans. Um, but that at this point is still 150 miles away. Um, and at this point they are already starving, freezing, frostbitten and exhausted. And they are only making five miles a day because of all of these issues. So not great. Uh, No, I wouldn't say it was. In mid-March, Lawrence Oates, suffering from severe frostbite in his left foot, told the whole team to leave him in a sleeping bag and go on without him, figuring they could all make better speed without him. Um, The men, to their credit, refused to leave him to die. Again, you're right. Like, these guys are sentimental. (laughs) They want to be honorable and do it the honorable way, even if honorable may be a little bit stupid. Um, Oates did manage to go a few more miles, but either on March 16th or 17th, um, we only have Scott's journal to go off and he's kind of not quite sure of the date. Um, Oates just walked out of his tent during a raging blizzard, telling his teammates, I am just going outside and maybe sometime. 
Scott wrote, uh, we knew that poor Oates was walking to his death, but though we tried to dissuade him, we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. So essentially he was like, I'm just going to go off into that quiet night <laughs> and uh, everybody will be better off without me. Man. Yeah. It's like when Charles Stanton died in the um, the Donner Party episode. Yeah. Like It's just like, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to smoke my pipe and I'll catch up with you guys later. And then they found him in a fucking tree stump like a Keebler elf. I know. It's very sad. Lawrence Oates. What a guy. I, I hardly knew him. So this leaves only Scott Bowers uh, and Edward Wilson. Henry Bowers, Ed- Robert Scott, Henry Bowers, Edward Wilson. The three left. Um, but the weather's worsening and their supplies are basically nothing at this point. So the situation was looking more and more dire until finally March 19th, another blizzard blows in uh, and the three are forced to make their final camp. So there were plans for Bowers and Wilson to make the next depot. Like they would go on ahead. They'd bring back some food and fuel, but this blizzard kind of got in their way. Essentially they ended up just staying in their tents and writing their final letters. And that's kind of the last we hear of Bowers and Wilson. Um, Scott kept up the diary, kept up his diary to the end, spending his last days writing his own letters, um, both to his own mother and his wife, but also to the mothers of Bowers and Wilson, which I find to be very sweet. In his final days, he penned his quote message to the public, which was primarily a long justification for kind of all the decisions he'd made, the ways he chose to organize and manage the expedition, Um, you know, placing the blame on things like, you know, the unpredictable shit, like the weather and things breaking down, which, you know, to be fair, like they had to deal with a lot of that shit and it is all a contributing factor. Well, how do you plan for something no one's ever done before? Exactly. Like you, you don't know what you don't know. And God. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very impressive what they managed to do, considering like how few resources they had available to them at the time. Uh, he did choose to end on an inspirational note. Um, said, we are weak. Writing is difficult. But for my own sake, I do not regret this journey, which has shown that Englishmen can endure hardships, help one another, and meet death with a great fortitude as ever in the past. We took risks. We knew when we took them. Things have come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint. But bow to the will of providence, determined still to do our best to the last. Just imagine one of the other guys reading over his shoulder. It's like, I have many causes for complaint, <laughs> sir. Uh, actually, I don't have a foot anymore. Can I add an amendment to this? I'm just like, just an appendices with some complaints. <laughs> Scott's very last entry did in March 29th reads, We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker. Of course, in the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott, last entry, for God's sake, look after our people. Yeah. Uh, It's presumed that Scott died later that day or possibly the day after, um, just based on the way the bodies were found inside the tent when it would be discovered later. It's believed that he was the final expedition member to perish. And they did so, this is going to kill you, 11 miles from the one-ton depot. No! Yeah. They knew it, too, which is even worse that's gotta be infuriating yeah like they were there they knew it they knew they were that close and they just knew they couldn't get to it because of the weather and because of the condition they were in just this yeah miserable miserable is is such an understatement (laughs) it's so infuriating episode you have ever done (laughs) you're welcome i try (sighs) there was another attempt from the team at camp evans to reach scott with more supplies in late march Um, But bad weather, again, prevented their journey further south and eventually any travel whatsoever. So at some point, the weather... Is it bad weather or is it just weather? It's just like Like constant blinding blizzards. Yes. So it's just weather. Yeah, just constantly. Um, Yeah. And like by April, it's pretty clear that... 
to everyone that something tragic has happened to Scott and his team. And at this point, like the weather has set into a point where they know like there is nothing they can do about it until spring comes around again. Spring Ugh. being, you know, in scare quotes, because there isn't really a spring as it is in, a, in, in Antarctica. It's just less cold. <sighs> yeah. So in October, search parties were sent out to look for Scott and his team. They managed to locate the tent containing the bodies of Scott Wilson and Bowers on November 12th, 1912. Uh, Amundsen, <sighs> meanwhile, had uh, spent most of 1912 doing kind of his international victory lap, uh, giving interviews and lectures as far as, uh, as far as Australia and America, and of course, writing a book chron- chronicling his journey to the South Pole. because. You gotta write a book. Things never change. I I hope he tries to do the North Pole and gets eaten by a fucking polar bear. <laughs> in Norway, he was a national hero. Of course, uh, every member of the expedition received a medal. The national flags were flown throughout the country to celebrate their achievement. Like Norway had only been like an independent nation for like six years at this point, so like this was a big deal. He was a big deal to them. Like to go to one of his like book signings and just lean over to the person next to me, like, did you know that he had to eat dogs to make this work? <laughs> Do you know how many dogs that guy ate? <laughs> uh, a pack. In- uh, in Britain, the reaction to the news was predictably a little more subdued. It's still generally positive, at least at first, you know, um, instead of beating the British team, but it was still, you know, a great story. Uh, no one's going to like, you can't not be impressed by a guy who walked to the South Pole. Um, and honestly, like, also, here's the thing, like, news of Scott's death did not get back to Britain until a full year later. It was February 11th, 1913, before anyone heard about what had happened to Scott, simply because they didn't find his body until late 1912. By the time they actually got that news back to civilization, it was February. Ooh. Well, yeah, the, the rescue party didn't bring a wireless tele- telegraph. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so a state memorial service was held in St. Paul's Cathedral with King George V in attendance, which was an extraordinary honor for someone who held no title. Um, was he um, the – which one was George? Was that the, the crown the, the crown queen's he dad? would have been – he would have been the cousin to Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas. He would have been – Oh, that guy. Okay. Yeah, he would have been like – Great. Would he have been grandpa to Queen Elizabeth or great grandpa? Uh, grandpa, I think. Yeah, um, one of them too. She was old. <laughs> yeah, she would have been born because she was like in her teens by the time like 1940s. Yeah, because she was in her early 20s when she took over in what, the 50s mm-hmm. when her dad died. Whatever, he was related. Sorry, yes. I just completely derailed that. <laughs> uh, but yes. Uh, so the news of Scott's death did complicate Amundsen's legacy, as you can imagine. Um, there were some, like Emily, um, and also the British press who painted him as a glory seeker and a dog killer, uh, who certainly wasn't in the exploration game for the right reasons. Like, gosh, he didn't do Tell any- Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> he didn't do any scientific research, so like, obviously he's just in it for the glory. Um, and Tell me I'm wrong, bitch! <laughs> he's not an honorable explor- explorer like the British are. This is uh, the one time I'm going to agree with the sun and the mirror. <laughs> uh, but others have since argued, and honestly, I think correctly, that Scott Deaths only serves to underscore what an accomplishment that Amundsen's expedition was and like what the stakes would have been if he weren't so brutally calculating in his plans. Like, yeah, you can give him a lot of shit for like the choices he made viewed from two women making a podcast in their very comfortable apartments. I'm chilly right now. Excuse me. <laughs> I left my slippers in the other room. Um, as a fun aside, Amundsen did eventually make it to the North Pole. Did he also sponsor a dog rescue? Because I think that's the only thing he can do right now. Uh, he um, he crossed over it in an airship uh, called the Norge in 1926. 
Um, but he uh, would die in 1928 at the age of 55. Uh, so an, an airship by the name of Italia had crashed north of Svalbard. And Amundsen took a plane to go look for survivors, essentially. So it was a rescue mission. Um, and Fine. Uh, he never returned. So while some wreckage was recovered, uh, he and his crew were never found. So it's kind of a mystery as to what exactly happened. But essentially, like, the plane he took was not really... It was a plane in 1928, and it was not made for, like, Arctic weather. Uh, so it's likely it just crashed. And it no turns survivors. out he had to eat a South American rugby team. Um, <laughs> and then he ate the rest of the crew. And no, no, that's complete libel. And then a bunch of dogs ate him. <laughs> uh, Scott's legacy, too, has been re-evaluated and evaluated and re-evaluated and evaluated again. Um, obviously, like, when he when there was first, like, news of his death, it was all like, oh, God, he's this tragic hero that did nothing wrong and died and this norwegian came out of nowhere and killed a bunch of dogs and stole his title um but then like so there was that phase for I'm a while like attacked right now <laughs> they went through a phase of that but then there was also like a phase where i think um they kind of reevaluated, and then like scott was a stupid bungler who didn't know how to do the north <sighs> pole or didn't know how to do the south pole and he planned everything really poorly and got himself killed um okay here's the thing it's the middle you know that's the thing like it swung really violently from like tragic hero to incompetent bumbler and like back now kind of like people have evaluated again and like no actually it's a lot more nuanced than that like were there things he planned poorly yes is it a great accomplishment that he made how do you plan for something that no one has ever done before is it an accomplishment to make it to the north pole in 1912 yes is it tragic that he died yes like were there complicating factors yes was did he contribute to his death yes like again probably (laughs) again like we're saying it's yeah he's a human situations are nuanced he did both smart things and dumb things just like amundsen did both asshole-ish and smart things they're both complicated people um i just (laughs) i will end on a nice note not a bummer note anymore um today there is a united states scientific base at the south pole and they've named it the amundsen scott south pole in honor of both men which i think is really nice that's fine (laughs) and that's the story of how we got to the south pole and a lot of very cold boys one might argue that we probably didn't need to go there but i mean we're still there today so i guess we're doing something useful down there besides just squatting on the land so we can say we claim it in some way did it um no i'm sure i mean i've watched enough movies about like arctic and antarctic you know research centers where like some bad shit happens so <laughs> i assume those are based in some sort of of fact of uh, i mean yeah true detective is a documentary isn't it i was th- well i was thinking more of like the thing and whiteout and that one episode of x files from season one but also also true detective that's alaska though alaska yeah. i'm i'm gonna say alaska is a little bit easier <laughs> than the arctic alaska slightly more habitable yeah like, it's still fucking cold, and there's still apparently polar bears and stuff, but uh, it's a little easier to get supplies out in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I say this like I've been to Alaska. <laughs> My dad did live in Alaska for quite a while, though. Yeah, and he met that one serial killer and brought, bought donuts from them. Oh, right! Yeah, Robert Hansen. Good donuts. Horrible guy. Who knew? Other than a lot of people, I guess. Uh, he was apparently a big creep. Um... I mean, the fact that I reacted so emotionally to parts of the story probably indicates that you did a very good job. Um, Thanks. It's a good story. It is. I like stories that have just that amount of human drama in them. 
just so mad. Like, ah, no, I'm not going to get into it. I, I understand that sometimes you have to do some abhorrent shit to survive, but also no one forced him to go to the South Pole. Also, you're viewing it from the lens of like a modern person in their view on dogs versus like a person in 1912 in their view on dogs as like a work animal. I mean, I'm mad about that and the ponies and and just leaving dudes behind. That part, no matter what decade you're in, that was an assholeish thing to do. I mean, it's also c- cultural differences, I guess. Uh, the Nor the Norweeds are more stoic. Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah. It was a good, you did a good job. And I am going to edit out a lot of me yelling. Uh, <laughs> just for everyone's sanity. I'm sad that, that those boys had to be so cold. But they died doing what they loved. Shit no one death. asked them to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. They died doing what they loved, freezing to death and starving. Um, yeah. The- All right. So if you've been to the South Pole, um, you can <laughs> tell us about it on Instagram at Afternoonified, uh, or you can email afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com. We also have our website, getafternoonified.com, where you can find past episodes. Uh, you can find links to merch. We have some some good merch. Um Remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all of that fun stuff. And I promise next week, no, no, I can't actually promise that. Um, ah, uh, nope, it, I can't make any promises. So strap in for next week. It might be a little more uplifting. Or it happened long enough ago that it's not as sad. There we go. You do all know right, that you're, everybody. You do know that you're referencing the mini that we just recorded and not your next episode. Oh, that's true. Um, so yeah, things do get better. Yeah. And you get a break from me. I we also forgot to address that I did two episodes in a row. And it's because I'm going on vacation. And I'll come back with a that's vacation it. mini. <laughs> yeah. And I won't um tell any more depressing stories about children or dogs dying. That's not true, and you know it. Um, but yeah, things will get better next week, and then things might take a little bit of a dip the week after that. But um, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We love you. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is... As above, so below.